So this is session three and uh, just for those of you who are still catching up, um, the first session back in September we talked about how to study theology without damaging your faith, which I think is a very pertinent um, thing to talk about because you know many of us know people who you know perhaps gone down uh, a theological route but not very successfully. Um, many people haven't had any problems, that's fine, so I don't want to assume. But um, we talked about basing our faith not just on um, a list of propositions that all have to be true for us to have a relationship with Jesus, but we, we explore theology in the light of and from a living relationship with God. And uh, <coughs> we talked about uh, different approaches, so you'll be able to catch up on the podcast or on the notes, obviously, on that. Uh, if that's um, something you need to go back to. Then on the second uh, session we talked about the Bible and what it is and what it isn't. And really it was kind of all a big introduction to this morning which is going to delve more deeply into the whole subject of Bible interpretation. And uh, as I say hopefully I'll make some sense this morning as I was travelling for 28 hours. Um, I have had a decent night's sleep but if I start to garble just let me know. Uh, and uh, hopefully the Holy Spirit will, uh, will give me some assistance and help me. Um, okay, so bad Bible interpretation. Um, when I was a relatively young Christian and I first started reading the Old Testament, um, it's very mysterious really. You know, when you start reading the prophets and uh, all these kind of um, apocalyptic um, visions and dire warnings and so on I, I was I started reading this stuff and it talks about ruined cities and uh, you know no nothing living left and I, and I in my this was the 1980s height of the Cold War so I started thinking my goodness the Bible is predicting uh, nuclear war and uh, you know this is all talking about the fallout and I was reading into it my 20 20th this time yeah not 20 I got I said 20th last time when I meant 21st but yeah it was, I was reading my 20th century understanding straight into the text without understanding um, what the you know the kind of style or genre that I was reading and how the Bible writers use metaphor and so on so that that was an example of pretty bad hermeneutics um, now I'm pleased to say that my, my Bible interpretation skills have increased a lot since then. Um, and in everything I'm saying this morning, I don't want to make it sound too difficult. It's not like you have to be an expert. Um, and it's not that the experts are, are not useful, they are. But you don't have to be a, an immense expert to, to do good hermeneutics. You know, really what you need mostly is a good dose of spirit-assisted common sense. Um, and a few useful principles. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So why do we need to interpret in the first place? Uh, I've started here with a quote from my favourite uh, author in this whole area of hermeneutics, which is Gordon Fee. And he says, Precisely because God chose to speak in the context of real human history, we may take courage that these same words will speak again and again in our own real history, as they have throughout the history of the Church. The fact that the Bible has a human side is our encouragement. It's also our challenge and is the reason that we need to interpret. And if you remember last time I spoke about how the Bible was written in different cultures, in different languages, um, 
their worldview was quite different sometimes to to ours and so there's a gap between us there's a gap in terms of time and in terms of geography in terms of, of culture um, and therefore we have to be aware of we have to mind the gap uh, we have to be aware of that before we decide how to apply a passage in our own lives now sometimes it's pretty easy I mean there are certain things in the Bible like you know if you took take the command to love one another you know it's pretty simple to to interpret that you just think well we need to love one another you know it's no different now to what it was then um, other ones you know there's a command in scripture where Paul says bring the cloak I left at Troas now we don't all have to think ah oh, there's a command in scripture that says we have to get Paul's cloak you know we don't all sort of start cloak uh, recovering uh, missions to go to Troas and find find a cloak you know that would be silly you know so we say well okay that was that was something that's to be left in the first century now the, the problem can come when there's something sort of in between it's like how much of this I'm reading is to be left in the first century how much of it is to be adapted into our culture and how much of it you can just read across straight away yeah. now we're studying the book of Colossians at the moment in our you know, regular King's Church Sunday mornings and um, it's actually one of those books that's actually pretty easy to interpret even if you don't know much of the history and you don't know much of what was going on um, a lot of it is just truth that you can read across and there's much difficulty with that but when we studied 1 Corinthians and it talked about women covering their heads in worship uh, when it talked about um, meat sacrifice to idols it's different cultural background affects the way you interpret and, and that's where the difficulty comes where Christians disagree on, on exactly how to, to to take these truths and apply them um, some people get a bit hot under the collar and a bit worried when you start to say well we need to bring culture into account you know they start to say well it was a, that's a slippery slope into error you know as soon as you start taking culture into account you're in, you're in problems but yet, when the Bible starts talking about, you know, play to God a melody on a ten-string lyre, they generally don't have any objection to having a six-string guitar or a, you know, or a piano or something. And they interpret that as, well, that just means all kinds of musical instruments, you know. So even, even they do uh, take culture into account. So it's about thought patterns. Um, if we, as I said earlier, if we bring our 21st century thought patterns into the word and we pay no attention to their thought patterns then we it can lead us into all sorts of uh, tricky and difficult situations so just saying read and obey uh, isn't going to work every time you know we have to um, take into account that gap so we need to bridge the gap um, now thankfully there are quite a few helpful tools you know we're very blessed that we have study Bibles we have concordances we have um, Bible dictionaries and commentaries and so on but as I say if we ask the Holy Spirit to help us and we apply some good sensible principles and have a good healthy dose of common sense then we can properly apply the Bible we can we can do a really good job so the real key to this when we're looking at a passage is to really think it means what it meant in other words God's message for us today 
first and foremost is exactly the same as what God's message was to the people. Um, so the, the real key question is what did the human author of that particular book, what were they intending to communicate? And the whole intent, intent of the author is absolutely paramount. And once we understand what they were trying to communicate to them, then we can make a sensible translation and maybe take the principles behind that and apply it to our own setting. So actually there are two stages to Bible interpretation. And this is what, you, this is what everybody should do whenever they read the Bible. So the first stage is find out what it meant to the original hearers <coughs> of that particular word. So what did it mean to them? And that is exegesis. That's, that's a, just an academic word meaning exactly that. What did it mean at the time? Find out what it meant to them. And then the second stage is to hear that same meaning but in our own context. So in other words, we, we understand what it says to them, why did they need to hear it, what did the author intend for them, how would they have understood it. Once we understand that, then we hear the same meaning but in our own context. And that bit is called hermeneutics. Now, in actual fact, hermeneutics kind of covers both, but sometimes people split it into, into two. So exegesis is really the first stage in good hermeneutics. So, how do we do that effectively? Uh, firstly, we've got to consider the context. So, you know, you've all heard, you know, the Bible says there is no God. And obviously it's an illustration of the fact that you've got to read in context, because the Bible says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. So you can pluck anything out of context and make the Bible say something, but we need to read around. So if we're trying to understand a particular verse, we've got to read around it, maybe that you know a few paragraphs before actually we've got to take into account the whole book that we're we're reading a lot of meaning depends on what leads up to something you know it's true in any kind of uh, part of life any kind of any human language the way you interpret a word or a phrase or a statement really depends on what led up to it and we've got to keep in mind the whole message of the bible so if, something's, if a particular bit of scripture seems to go against our broad understanding from the whole sweep of scripture, then we may need to look at our interpretation and think, am I getting this right? It's also really helpful to look at different passages, different books um, that refer to the one <coughs> we're studying. And that means that, um, for example, um, in Matthew 21, there's a story of Jesus clearing the temple and he gets quite angry with them as we know and he says to them my father's house is meant to be a, a house of prayer but you've made it a den of robbers now if that's what if that's all you read and i, I was certainly in this situation you you tend to think okay why is it a den of robbers they, it must be because of the dishonest practices that were going on in the temple and that's how I understood it for a long time. But then I noticed that there was a reference in, in the footnotes of my Bible that talked uh, about a passage in Jeremiah chapter 7. So one day I thought, you know what, I'm going to read that passage and find out what Jesus meant. 
So you go back into Jeremiah chapter 7, and there's a whole bit there. First of all, you read the bit, it says, you know, you've made this place a den of robbers. Is this, or rather it says, is this place a den of robbers to you? And it's talking about the temple. So I thought, well, I, I need to go back. I need to read this in context. So um, I'll go and, and read the Old Testament uh, passage. I'm going to read it now, actually, because I think it's worth uh, to illustrate. Okay, so the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Stand at the, the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord. And he's talking, he's saying, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. And that brings to mind the covenant that they had. They were only allowed to live in the land and, and have the temple and everything if they lived according to the covenant. And then in uh, verse 4 he says, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, and if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and don't shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. And he goes on to say how they're, they're, they're committing adultery, they're stealing, and then they come into the temple, uh, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So, suddenly, when I was reading that, I thought, oh, I suddenly know what it means. Because what they're doing is, they're living how they want. They're in all sorts of sinful practices and bad behaviour and, and idol worship. But because they've got the temple, they come in and they feel secure. They think, oh, well, we've got the temple. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple. And they're, and they're repeating words. And they feel that it's, they're safe in there so that they can do what they like elsewhere. So the den of robbers, a, a robber's den, is somewhere where they come and they feel safe. It's their hideout. So they were treating the temple as a hideout and a, and a religious safe place to be, which allowed them to go and do whatever they liked elsewhere. And they were trusting in basically their religion um, and not believing that there were going to be any consequences from the sinful life that they were living outside. So suddenly when Jesus said, you've made this place a den of robbers, he's not just saying, you lot are being dishonest in the way you're selling these animals or money changers or whatever. He's actually saying, you're trusting in this temple. You think because you've got this massive building and all these religious ceremonies, you think you can live how you like with no consequences and you are trusting basically in, in false religion and false spirituality when actually God's watching you and, 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 and you know, the way you're living isn't right. So all those connotations are there. So you can, it's much broader than just the being a bit dishonest. But there's a richness that comes when we start to look at the Bible like that and we start to let the Bible interpret itself and we read stuff in context and we find out what was in their minds, you know, you can see how to apply that now. You know, it's difficult to apply, uh, let's not be dishonest when we sell animals in the temple courts. You know, that, that's not something we can grab hold of. But we can certainly grab hold of the idea of 
not just coming on a Sunday morning and doing church and that therefore ticks the God box and the religion box and then live how we like the rest of the week, you know. Um, and there's a, there's a depth to it then. So, um, let the Bible interpret itself. Um, if we read the Bible frequently and we get familiar with the overall story of the Bible, and it's a big read, it takes a while to get through, so this is going to be a you know, years-long project, the more connections we'll be able to see and the more we suddenly think, oh, I remember something, I remember reading about that somewhere else, and then we can get our dictionaries out or our commentaries or our phones you know, and, and search for stuff. Um, most Bibles have got footnotes. It's worth following the footnotes sometimes just to, uh, to really hear the context. But we'll get better at it. Um, as we, the more we do this, the better at it we'll get. Okay, so next thing. When looking for a possible meaning, we need to remember that a verse or passage can never mean something that the original hearers wouldn't be able to understand. So, for example, um, in the book of Revelation, there's a place where um, a woman is, is sort of carried off. It's an image of a, a woman being carried off on eagle's wings into a safe place in the desert where she may be cared for. And so one Bible interpreter um, decided that that must be about the nation of Israel being carried by the American Air Force, the symbol of the, uh, the, the eagle, the eagle in the American sort of symbol, flag, whatever, not the flag, but the, um, they have that eagle sign, don't they? Decided it must be, the wings of the eagle must therefore be the American Air Force carrying the nation of Israel, you know, away from danger. Which is total nonsense. <laughs> because it can't have meant that, because how did John know about the American Air Force? You know, the people he was, he was writing for them. Um, the primary meaning has got to be something that they would be able to understand at the time. Now, it is possible that there are broader meanings or secondary meanings that could potentially be overlaid on top, but the first thing we've got to get to is what would they have understood by it? It can't mean what it never meant. Um, another little useful tip is if we find that our interpretation is different to everybody else's, you know, we've got this unique way or we, we read something where it's totally different to what anybody else is saying, then we've got to raise a red flag and go, hmm, maybe that's not, maybe that's not the right way to interpret it. That's not to say that the Holy Spirit can't sort of um, reveal something to us um, that brings another dimension <coughs> to things, but the primary meaning, if somebody's got an off-the-wall interpretation, there's a good chance it's, uh, it's a duff one. So, you will be pleased to know, this, this was a short um, first session this time, but I want us to get into a bit of thinking. So we're going to break now for a, a scone and a, a, a refill of tea or coffee, but what I'd like us to do, I've got two questions here. Um, you can tackle both or maybe just pick one in the time we've got because I only want to stop for about 10 minutes or so. Um, but using those principles of, of allowing the Bible to interpret itself, of reading things in context and the fact that it's got to be something that they could understand and what did the author intend to convey. Um, have a look at these two passages. Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 is part of the, the law. Um, and it says that the people of God should build a parapet, a little wall, around the roof of their houses. 
So, you know, should Christians hire builders and roofers to, uh, to have a parapet put on their roofs? Or if not, what is the application today? And then First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Um, you can read it in, in the break. It's, uh, it's often used to prove, quotes, that spiritual gifts, gifts do not operate in modern times, but are died out once the New Testament scriptures have been finalised. It talks about how when I was a child, I reasoned like a child, I thought like a child, and it talks about, you know, prophecy will pass away and all this kind of stuff. But then it says, um, when perfection comes, I, you know, I effectively leave all that behind me. So people interpret that and say, ah, oh, well, uh, when, once the canon of scripture is complete, we don't need prophecy in tongues and spiritual gifts. And they use that to... to interpret the Bible in a certain way to say that spiritual gifts have died out. So how does good hermeneutics show that to be untrue? Okay, so that's a slightly trickier one to, to do, but <coughs> with the principles that we've highlighted, it should be possible. So let's take a quick break, grab a scone, come back in, have a bit of a chin wag, and uh, we'll, we'll go into, after that, we're going to go into some of the genres of scripture and the different types of literature and how to look at those. Okay. Brilliant. So, uh, I will say a couple of things about those two questions uh, before I get on to the, uh, the next bit of teaching. Um, Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, uh, I, I think uh, I heard Steve saying some stuff about this during the break, and I thought, yeah, you, you guys are kind of onto the, the right lines, really. What, you've got to, what helps, actually, is if you've read other biblical passages that talk about for example, Peter going up onto the roof to pray, or um, the widow who, uh, not the widow, sorry, the, the wife who built um, uh, Elijah, or was it Elisha? I always get mixed up between the two on certain passages. Uh, I believe it was Elisha. Um, built a, a little house on the roof, a little room on the roof. Sorry? Then I can get it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, so if we think, oh, actually, they, they therefore had flat roofs, and, uh, you know, it is true, they, they did have flat roofs, um, but they also used to use the roof for extra space, for storage, or for, you know, if you needed an extra room, you could build a room on the roof. So if um, there's an instruction in the law to build a parapet around the roof, what you're doing is you're just making sure nobody's going to fall off. So it's, it's really um, very early building regulations. So they're basically it's health and safety. Yep. It's sort of let's, let's, let's respect our fellow human beings to the point where we're going to you know, try and safeguard them so they're not going to fall off the roof. So in our culture, we don't interpret that by, with our sloping roofs um, building a parapet around it because it's pointless because... We don't go up there unless, you know, we've got there's a reason and we go with ladders and other equipment. Um, but what we might take from that verse is um, if we, you know, if we dug a big hole in our front garden uh, for something and it's dark at night and so on, we might well put a cover over it or we might put a sign saying beware of the hole, you know, just to sort of when the postman comes and fall down it, you know. and consideration and care for others not allowing you know not just thinking well it's not our problem so we interpret it in our own context the second one in 1 Corinthians 13 the key principle with this 
And this is where people are saying, um, you know, when perfection comes, when the New Testament canon is completed, when the Bible is there, we don't need prophecy and words of knowledge and all that. Um, the key principle there is it could never mean what it never meant. If it was something that they wouldn't have been able to understand, then that's not the, the meaning. So they had no idea at the time that there was going to be a New Testament canon. They didn't know that all these letters of Paul and, all, and John and all that, they knew they existed and they were useful and they, and, and they you know, God spoke to them through it. Um, but they hadn't got this idea in mind that one day they'd all be collected together and, and there would be a closed canon of scripture. So that phrase, when perfection comes or when maturity comes or whatever, it can't mean that. So we obviously, we interpret that as, you know, when once uh, the kingdom fully comes in our world and the, the age to come you know swallows up the the present age and, and we move into that eternal state um, that's what we mean by when when completion or perfection comes you know then now I know partially as if looking in a darkened mirror but then I will know fully even as I'm fully known and that's what Paul's talking about so it can't mean what it never meant right um, I'm now going to whiz through um, some different Bible genres and look at how we, we look at those and interpret them. Oh, by the way, um, I just want to really plug these books. I've got three books over here just as examples um, about hermeneutics. This one, I think it should be compulsory reading. Oh, I've read that for one. Every, oh, well done, Maria. Um, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart how to read the bible for all it's worth it's been out a long time it's been revised two or three times this is the second edition i think there's a probably another one out but then they're, they're bible scholars but they're bible believing bible scholars and it's just so helpful and it, it really goes into a bit more depth about the stuff i'm talking about today <clears throat> they also produced a sequel to it called how to read the bible book by book so before you embark on a reading of, of a particular book, there's just a few pages on each book with who wrote it, why, tips on how to interpret it, summaries, when it was written, useful background. And it's just really, really helpful. I've used that a lot uh, myself. And then if you want to go to it in even more depth, um, this one by Gordon Fee called Gospel and Spirit issues in New Testament hermeneutics. Very, very good on the subject of women in leadership. Really goes into 1 Timothy and how we interpret that. And other things as well. Um, but he, it's sort of test cases of using these hermeneutical principles. So they're very good. But this one certainly, how to read the Bible for all it's worth, do get it because it will really help you. Um, <clears throat> okay, so there are different types of writing in the Bible. There's narrative, there's poetry, prophecy, law, etc, etc, proverbs. All of these things need approaching in a different way. And although they're all part of the Word of God to us, they don't function the same way. You know, how they don't function as the Word of God in quite the same manner. Uh, and therefore we need some principles that help us get the most out of it. So the first one I've covered here is narrative, which is basically story, history telling, you know, telling of a, a this is what <coughs> happened. And a lot of Old Testament history books, the Gospels, um, the Book of Acts, are in the form of narrative. 
and it basically describes what happens. So just two, a couple of bullet points here in your notes. Firstly, narrative is not intended for teaching truth. It can illustrate the truth, but it's not intended to, to teach truth. It's basically saying this is what happened. Um, secondly, it doesn't always represent what should have happened. Just because somebody did something doesn't mean that that was the right thing to do. You know, so when we read the book of Acts, the way they handled everything, wasn't necessarily the right thing to do, and we need to, to look into it uh, with that in mind. And then thirdly, God is always the hero, not people. Um, so we've got to work out what God is doing in the story. Okay, so that's that. I'm not going to cover that in any more depth just now. Uh, now, law. I touched on this last time um, in how we approach the Bible. But the key way that we need to understand the books of the law, which are traditionally the first five books, um, there isn't much law as such in Genesis, but it's taken as part of the, the book of Moses, the book of the law. The key way to understand all these commands and all these different sacrifices and rituals and so on is that it's a covenant between God and his ancient people of Israel. It's God's covenant between them and him. It was the way that they were meant to relate to God. Um, <clears throat> in many ways, uh, it actually reflected covenants and laws that were around at the time. It's miles better, actually, and more progressive than a lot of those laws, and it took them to a higher level. Um, but it was a covenant for them at that time. It's not binding on us today, um, although it does point to Christ. It does point to higher realities, and it was trying to draw them to a better understanding of God as well. Um, so really it was there to build their society. It was designed to... Um, it was appropriate to their day, but it was to build a godly society in their context. So we shouldn't jump to conclusions about what it means uh, in our... You know, we don't just read across directly. Um, small example, um, one, of the, one of the laws is don't move a boundary stone set up by your forefathers. And we think about that, I don't move a boundary stone. How do we, uh, how do we interpret that then? And, uh, you know, some people have interpreted it as, you, you know, you mustn't change your doctrine from what you were taught by your forebears in the faith. You know, it's like, oh, you're moving a boundary stone. You know, you're changing your view on, on something. But actually, if we read around that and we understand that Israel was given the land and each tribe inherited a tract of land and also that they didn't own the land. They didn't have land ownership. God owned the land. They were just given stewardship over a particular portion of land. And from time to time, they did sell the rights to use land. It was, you know, maybe they gave somebody else the rights to use it. But at the year of Jubilee, everything had to come back to the original owners. And that, potentially, if we were to put that into practice today somehow, it would solve a lot of problems. But um, the key thing is that the boundary stones determined where your inheritance was, not just within the tribes, but also within families and clans and things. So if you moved a boundary stone, it's like you going into your back garden in the dead of night and shifting the fence by a couple of feet, you know, into your neighbor's garden. You're stealing their property. And 
it was taking somebody else's inheritance it was basically theft um, so you know it's not about you must never change your doctrine that verse it's it's about basically don't steal somebody else's inheritance don't don't rob your neighbor is what it's talking about um, but if we understand something about the culture and what it was like in their day then we're in a better shape to to interpret it for ourselves so there's there is this law it was for their society now in the new covenant in the new the new covenant relationship we have with God it's about our union with God that produces the right behavior based on the spirit within us and the divine nature within us rather than having to have this external code of, of ethics code of law however the New Testament does take up some of those commands and it takes up some of those laws and in a sense it um, it restates them um, but it uses them to describe what the life in the spirit is meant to be about so it's using it as illustrations of what the kingdom looks like so Jesus Sermon on the Mount isn't a restatement of a kind of law it's just saying this is what it's like this is what the life of the kingdom is this is what the life of the spirit is like so some of these commands are renewed but it's no longer in terms of an obligation that we've got to do but it's almost like an illustration of what life with God life in the, in the spirit is like and the the commandments, for example, the Ten Commandments, you shall not lie, you shall not commit adultery, blah, 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 they become promises rather than commands because they're promises of what will happen if we live life in the Spirit, um, in union with God. So let's leave the law as a covenant with God's ancient people, but it does. some of the principles do draw through. <coughs> okay, poetry. Um, this is really worth understanding because a lot of the Old Testament is in a poetic form. Lots of the wisdom books and bits of revelation in the New Testament and so on. Now English poetry, when we read poetry, often it uses what you might call parallelism of sound. In other words, rhyme. The cat sat on the mat. Okay, it's not a very good poem, but it's, it rhymes. It's got rhythm. Um, we use parallelism um, of the rhythm like that. But Hebrew poetry uses parallel ideas, um, often in pairs, one thing stated, then another thing stated, which is a parallel idea. And one statement can echo the other one, it can confirm it or strengthen it, or it can be a contrast. You know, sometimes it says, um, <coughs> search and search and search, but something else and it's a contrast you know now the great thing about this this is just God's genius really in in Hebrew being the language of the of the Bible the Old Testament because if you translate that kind of poetry into any language it still remains poetic because you don't lose even though we might lose some of the they did use little word devices like alliteration where you know things begin with the same letter and all that kind of they did have that sort of thing but mostly the poetry remains poetry even when it's translated into any language because the the concept is it's parallel ideas rather than specific words um, so that can help us in interpreting it because if we realize that then if we're struggling with one clause or one phrase and we think what on earth does that mean we look at the next one 
we can go, ah, oh, that's saying the same thing but in a slightly different way. So for example, Proverbs 17 verse 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Um, now, I remember having a discussion you know, years ago and, and the debate was, does this mean that your, f your family are often um, harder to live with than your friends? You know, um, a friend loves at all times, a true friend, but a brother is born for adversity. Does that mean, therefore, that your natural family are kind of harder to live with than your friends? But if we realise it's Hebrew poetry, and it's not a but, it's an and, we're realising that the two statements echo one another. So a friend loves at all times is parallel to a brother is born for adversity. So friend and brother are parallel. So it's a positive thing, not a kind of your family is hard to live with. Loves at all times, born for adversity. In other words, they're there even in adversity. They're even there when things are difficult, not just when things are good. And so it's the two things echo one another. So it helped, we've used that one verse to interpret itself, understanding the nature of Hebrew poetry. Okay. Um, where are we now? Prophecy. Let's move on to, to prophecy. Now, <laughs> my nuclear war thing, um, that was the wrong way to, to do it. I hadn't understood that a lot of the Old Testament prophets, what for them was in the future, for us is in the past, because it's already happened. A lot of the prophetic books in the Old Testament were warnings to the ancient people of Israel that they weren't living according to that covenant and that the consequences were going to come upon them. But it's all couched in that vivid language of the covenant blessings and the covenant curses. Um, now, we, we sometimes get caught up with these in real um, symbolic, metaphorical type things where we're not used to that um, extreme language. But years and years ago, in, in 1991, um, if people were around at that time, some of us were aware of what was going on, some might have been too young. Um, but Saddam Hussein in Iraq, you know, in advance of the, the bombing campaign and eventually he was ousted, but he, he made this speech where he was talking about his armies being victorious and he, he talked about the mother of all battles. And it kind of came into our language, you know, the mother of all this, the mother of all that. It came from Saddam Hussein. But he said, the mother of all battles. And he talked about rivers of blood flowing in the streets and about how, you know, it was really dramatic language. Um, and we kind of slightly mocked it in the West because we thought, oh, come on. But he was from the East, not the West. And the Bible is an Eastern book. It originated in in cultures where they were more extreme in their language and they were not you know they weren't British you know they weren't sort of an understatement so um, where you've got for example Jesus talking in the New Testament in Mark 13 um, there's something in there where it talks about you know the stars will fall out of the sky and uh, the moon will you know do this that and these sort of dramatic cosmic signs and people interpret that as if that's talking about the end of the world but actually if you look into it it's really talking about what happened in AD 70 when the, the temple was destroyed and people say well how can you how can you say that because he's talking about all these cosmic signs but if we um, 
N.T. Wright, this great writer, um, uses this example. He says, if we in the West um, talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall, for example, that was a, an amazing event. If we say it was a cataclysmic event, and if we said it was an earth-shattering moment in history, if we wrote that down, into, you know, we know what we mean. We just mean it was of dramatic political importance of, of worldwide ramifications, and we call it earth-shattering. Somebody in 2,000 years' time might pick it up and go, wow, the earth actually cracked in two. The earth shattered. You know, and they interpret it as there must have been huge earthquakes and... Um, but we didn't really mean that. We just meant it was an earth-shattering, cataclysmic event in the sense of its significance. And so when Jesus starts talking about stars will fall from the sky, the moon will turn red, and you know, he's using that same kind of language because um, the events that led up to AD 70, there were four different Roman emperors in one year, all came to power through a coup. You know, what's happening in, in Zimbabwe at the moment is nothing compared to, to that. The world was in absolute turmoil. Um, and then eventually the Roman armies then came and surrounded Jerusalem and absolutely it was a bloodbath. You know, and they, they destroyed the entire Jewish um, way of life really in Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And to them it was cataclysmic, it was earth shattering. So when they're using this language, it's not just obviously um, this is a new testament example but in the old testament as well they're using this extreme language to describe earthly things okay so let's i need to crack on don't i but so they obviously in these prophetic books getting back to the old testament again there are promises of future restoration that hint at the new covenant realities and christ is in there uh, but we do still need to understand the point of history at which each one was written. And that's where books like that, How to Read the Bible, book by book, really helps. Um, it also helps to recognise that often a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah, <clears throat> it's not one long screed of stuff. It's actually broken into discrete oracles, discrete prophecies that you know maybe were brought at a specific time. And they're, they're sometimes separate from one another. So they've been collected together. Okay, enough on, on prophecy. Parables, um, what I've said here is that except in rare cases where Jesus does actually spell it out, generally a parable is only making one main point. So when, when we've got the parable of the rich uh, fool, the foolish uh, rich man who tears down all his barns and builds bigger ones because he's making money for himself and then he dies, we don't need to, to think, oh, what do the barns represent? You know, we don't need to go into the detail because all it's saying is, look, time is short. That's the meaning of the parable. Time is short. Concentrate on what really matters. Um, and often the, the other bits and bobs in the parable are there for effect or for drama. And the idea of the parables was to shock people. It was to kind of, um, it's like a good joke with a good punchline. You know, the, the parable of um, the Good Samaritan was shocking to them because they never imagined in a million years that the hero of the story would turn out to be a Samaritan that would really look down on. And so it was designed to provoke a response. And it's like that when you, when you tell a joke, the punchline is something unexpected. It's something oh, arresting. And that's what these parables were meant to be. So too much explanation and analysis can actually 
spoil it. There are one or two where there is a lot of detail in there and Jesus spells out what it actually means, but often we don't need to push the illustration to to ridiculous extent. Okay, letters. Let's look at these letters then. A lot of the New Testament books are actually real letters written to real people for a particular purpose. They weren't there to spell out theology, um, but they were there to correct something or strengthen people in a particular way. So again, what was the intent of the author? Work out why the letter was written. What's the main point or points? Um, who was reading it? What did they need to hear? What was going on at the time? So for example, in 1 Timothy, where Paul's talking about a woman shall not be an authority over a man and don't, you know, elders could be the husband of one wife not if you look into the background of what's going on there they've got a major crisis going on because some of the elders in Ephesus as in fact Paul prophesied in Acts 20 I think it is he prophesied that some men would arise from their own number and distort the truth and when you read 1 Timothy it looks like that's happened it looks like that that's come true and so they've had people drawing away particularly some of the younger widows it seems and they've got a real crisis going on where they've got to they've got to get new elders they've got to sort out the, the bad teaching they got to appoint new elders and they've got to address the major issues so um, that book gospel and spirit goes into this in a lot more detail but it's what did they need to hear um, we take it out of context and we we make it mean something that that wasn't actually intended so what was going on at the time there was in that case there was a real crisis going on so that has to affect how we interpret it and then what it means for us is what it meant for them with a sensible translation I've said this quite a few times already so we, we sometimes we need to hear an equivalent principle you know um, head covering does it really matter in our culture whether people cover their heads or not it doesn't but if we take the principle and say they were doing something in their corporate gatherings together which was bringing disorder and bringing the gospel into disrepute from outsiders point of view well let's not do that let's try and avoid doing anything and we can translate that into our culture and we can probably think of ways that we could behave or dress when, when we're gathering for corporate worship which would actually distract from what we're trying to do you know um, there are ways you might dress and behave on a beach or at a party or whatever <coughs> that are probably just not appropriate for a corporate worship gathering because you're going to di distract people and dis you know create um, the wrong uh, atmosphere if you like so we hear the principle but apply it um, translated to our culture <coughs> book of revelation well can be hard to understand <coughs> very uh, many books have been written um, and it's easily misinterpreted if we don't do exegesis before we do hermeneutics, if we don't do the what did it mean to them. So the apocalyptic or the apocalypse genre was a particular style and people knew that there were codes in there, there were particular ways of understanding stuff. So for example a beast coming out of the sea, um, generally people knew that that meant an invading empire. Um, and we don't have that style of writing but if we we get a bit of help um, how to read the Bible book by book goes into it and so does well, both of those books do 
really helpful. Uh, then we can start to understand it. So primary meaning can't be something that they wouldn't have understood, um, although a secondary meaning is sometimes possible. As with the parables, it's good to look at the different pictures as holes rather than looking necessarily at every little detail. So look at the big picture. What is this telling us? Um, a lot of it does not relate to the future. People seem to think it's like a guided tour of future events and you know people kind of have timelines on the wall of when this beast is going to appear and when that's going to happen and it <coughs> it's not like that. A lot of it is describing present realities. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is describing the situation now in the spiritual realm um, and what Christ has accomplished, um, what you know, where we are as his people already. You know, the <clears throat> the twenty-four elders bowing down before the throne. It's not for the future. That's that's now. You know, that's that's humanity. Um, you know, redeemed humanity worshiping God. Um, <clears throat> some parts do concern the future, but a lot of it has a, a bit of a blend of of both. So. It talks about Rome and Jerusalem. Uh, it's sort of coded messages to encourage the church at the time. And uh, Tony Ling actually has written, he came to speak oh, a few months ago on a Sunday here. He's written a couple of books called The Lion and the Lamb, um, which I'll probably mention again when we come to look at the end times. But they're, they're from this really good viewpoint, which is that this is describing this, the situation now. Um, so it's not a detailed chronological prediction of the future. It's really there to reassure the church that God is in control and that he's for them. So I'm going to, to wrap up because I really desperately do need to. Um, final thoughts. Where the Bible gives uh, instructions to us, we need to know whether they are culturally relative or whether they're directly applicable. And this is where the rubber can hit the road for many Christians. So I've put down four principles here to help us decide what what to do with a given passage so firstly do the same circumstances apply now to what, what it was then if we've got basically the same set of circumstances then we can probably apply the passage directly secondly is the Bible unequivocal in its teaching? In other words, is it always saying the same thing? Right through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, does it say the same thing? Or are there different teachings in different places? If there are different teachings in different places, there's a fair chance that um, it's to do with the circumstances. So, so the third option, did the third point, I should say, did the same options for living exist then? as those that exist today. If there's only really one way to live in the first century, then it's more likely that that teaching is culturally conditioned. But if there are multiple choices similar to today, then it's more likely that you can just apply straight away. So, slavery. There really was only one pattern. Slavery was endemic, it was everywhere. Um, there was only really one way to live. So when the Bible talks about slavery, it doesn't really condemn it, it just teaches you how to live in that circumstance. Um, similarly with um, women in the home, wives submit to your husbands. There really was only one option. Um, 
but if there's more choices available then it's more likely you can just read across if it because there's only one way to do things it's going to be affected by the culture um, and then fourthly if something is consistently included in lists of morally right or wrong behaviors then it's likely to be the same for us today so the idea of slaves submitting to masters and the idea of women submitting to men in different contexts never appears in a list of moral duties or moral commands but not being sexually immoral does always occur in everyone for example so you need to think about these things differently <clears throat> so just gonna gonna wrap up as I say the, the these uh, books that I've highlighted go into to more depth on all of this but what I would encourage us to do rather than only thinking exegetically for the difficult passages and trying to sort of interpret it that way it will really enhance our Bible reading if we do that every time we read the Bible um, you know if we're just reading devotionally okay maybe there's less reason to but I, I've got into the habit even when I'm only reading on my daily Bible reading I'm thinking right what first of all what did it mean for them what was what's being addressed and then I'm in a better shape to to interpret it for myself and I found it to be a really enriching thing I think it will really enhance our Bible reading if we do that every time rather than just when we're we're studying and it can be a quick thing it can just be it's just a mindset um, and the more we understand about it the more we read about it the more able we are to do it without having to uh, go to external sources okay so I'm just going to close with uh, it's the first verse of a poem it's a quite a long poem but it's just one thing some people attribute it to William Blake but I'm not sure it was him uh, it's generally unattributed but it starts off like this it says this is the greatest book on earth unparalleled it stands its author God its truth divine inspired in every word and line though writ by human hands and I think that's just a, a fitting way to finish because it's encapsulating both the human side and the divine side of the Bible so if you've got any questions uh, we've got you know you, uh, you might need to whiz off now but if you've got any questions you know talk to me about it if I've said anything that wasn't very clear let me know um, but if you get hold of the uh, the books they'll go into it in a lot more detail okay.